Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, last week I started off the show with just a little advisory that I was going to be taking a trip, you know, at the end of last week. And so I actually got a surprising amount of, I don't know, good vibrations, I guess, from a lot of you. Basically saying that, you know, I hope you have fun on the trip, hope you eat a lot of Taco Villa, so on and so forth. So... That's what I'm going to be talking about for just a second here. I made exactly two trips to Taco Villa. One was literally the minute I rolled into town, made a beeline for Taco Villa in Odessa, Texas at 42nd and Grandview, for those interested, because that one is the premier Taco Villa, at least in my estimation. And I got my usual order of, let's see, it was a, I ordered a taco burger, I ordered a combination burrito with extra cheese, extra sauce, and extra cheese. And then I got an order of nachos. And yes, I ate all of it. And it was magnificent. Anyway, so that was day one. Day two, mostly because of the fact that I wasn't quite as hungry when I showed up and there wasn't quite as much time at that exact moment. I had a kind of a smaller order. It was basically the same thing, but minus the taco burger. So I got an, I got a, a combination burrito, and I got an order of nachos, and then of course I got my usual large Dr. Pepper with a shot of vanilla. And unfortunately that was it because on Sunday we left and there really wasn't time to swing by there one last time to get breakfast and whatnot. And this is due in part to the fact that, you know, time was just sort of working against us. We were a little bit behind the clock. The other thing, though, was that the, the town had, it, it was facing a, or rather, it had been hit recently by a snowpocalypse. And there was a fear that another, uh, another snowstorm was on the way and we wanted to get the hell out of Dodge before it, before it came to town. And so it was that we had to blow out of town without another trip to Taco Villa. So, three-day trip, only went twice, but hey, better than nothing, right? So, anyway, I wouldn't have thought most of you would have cared very much about that, but a surprising number of you were actually very interested in that. So, just thought you'd want the update. So, anyway, so that's pretty much that. Now, enjoy the rest of the episode. Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own angled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and right now I'm excited as all hell about Batman versus Superman. And that's what this whole mega series that I've been going through lately has been building up to. 
the theatrical release of Batman v Superman. And so, as part of the festivities for all that, I decided to talk about approximately two and a half craploads of Superman and Batman comics. The entire purpose of this mega series, apart from the obvious, is to read Batman comics and Superman comics that I just love. You know? Or, lacking that, comics that I at least have a lot to say about. But, before I get into today's Superman comic, though, it's only fair, fitting, and right to first introduce my guest this time around. Now, don't get me wrong. I would have talked about today's Superman comic sooner or later. But what you can be sure of is that I wouldn't have talked about today's comic right now. Not without today's guest. At the time that I record this, this guy's the co-founder and co-host of Avengers Inspirations and host of Golden Age Superman. Today's guest is none other than John M. Wilson himself. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? I tried to get my clone on here for you, but, but you, 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 you demanded that the real John M. Wilson step forward. So here I am, well, ready to go. You know, and that's the kind of funny thing. Under the circumstances, I think it may have actually been a little bit easier to get your clone onto the show than it was to get the real thing. <laughs> maybe, maybe. He, he doesn't have a whole lot to do. He's, he basically fixes his nose all day and while I'm out there making the money for the family. Yeah, there you go. Um, for those of you who don't really know what John and I are talking about right now, uh, John is uh, cruising around the Ohio countryside on the road. This is maybe the very first time, at least that I'm aware of, of somebody podcasting while they road trip. So I must say, you know, you're breaking new ground here all the time. You know, uh, job well done, sir. You have my admiration. It's certainly the first time anyone's road trip from the backseat of a 2010 Dodge Caravan while podcasting. So... Yeah, uh, so there's another first for you right there. So, very good, very good. So, um, I guess first up, thank you for joining me today, John. It's it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. But it, it, It's always fun to be here. It's It's been a little while since we talked about Superman last time, and, and I was I was excited to hear about this, this series that we've been going through uh, and to be involved in so much of it. So, it's been fun. <laughs> yes, it has. It's it's um, and you know, and that actually leads into actually another thing. It's really it's always a pleasure to talk about Superman with you. You know, because it feels like there are very like as a Superman guy, I, I, maybe you understand what this is like. It, it's kind of sometimes it's hard to feel like you have a peer. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's not to say there aren't a, aren't a few of them out there. Certainly, we have some mutual friends that I think we can stand shoulder to shoulder with. But but there aren't that many that I feel like I can really just go to town on Superman with. So, yes, it's always fun to be here. Yeah. And uh, speaking of being here, originally, uh, Michael Bailey from uh, Views from the Long Box was going to be joining us today as well. But unfortunately, there were some work conflicts that ended up, um, I guess, standing in the way of that. So uh, he's with us in spirit, and ultimately, I think that's what counts the most. But obviously... And the son of a bitch owes me 20 bucks, too. He was supposed to be here. Now I have to get him some other the time. Yeah, I know. What a jerk. But, uh, yeah, what can you do? Um, but, you know, I, it's just it, it would have been nice to, I, I must say, to, uh, you know, listen to the two of you kind of play off each other. So, I don't know, maybe another time, I guess. But uh, now, I guess for right now, uh, people, I've got this reputation for recording all my stuff way ahead of time. There's this perception out there that all my shows were recorded 
ages and ages ago and only trickled out piecemeal. And to be honest, there's a tiny germ of truth to that, but never before has it been as true as it is right now, because not only were most of the Batman episodes that I've released lately recorded back in 2014, but release date be damned. John and I are recording today's episode in March of 2015, and as the guest of honor, I think I want to put John on the spot and have him explain precisely why it is we're going, we're, we're going to all this trouble to record this, uh, this particular episode so far in advance. And while you're at it, how about you tell him what we'll be covering today, too? So take it away, John. Well, just a couple weeks ago, I guess, maybe a month or so ago now, this book hit the stands. And I read it, and I said, oh my gosh, I need to talk about this book. And I don't really have a venue for talking about random stuff that comes to my head. I have something that I've been playing with the idea of getting off the ground, but I don't really know if, if by the time this airs if I've actually done that or not. So as it is, I didn't have any place to actually go and talk about it. So I basically said on Facebook, wow, I really need a podcast about this. And then you, you know, in all of your glory, stepped down from your golden throne with its emerald fixtures and, uh, you know, said, hey, I want a podcast about this too. So it's only been on the stands for a very short while, but Superman Earth One Volume 3 needs to be discussed. So even though you're hearing this, I don't know, in like, 3011 or something it's it's it, we needed to talk about it today right you are well and the fact is the um i i talked about the previous two volumes in the superman earth one series and i had fun doing it and everything but you know this is one of those things that when you really put your own stuff under the microscope you know you weigh it in the scales and everything it's sometimes found wanting and that's kind of where i found myself with those episodes i think they're okay for what they are might have been a little bit better, though, had there been somebody there that I could have bounced off of and, you know, talked to and all this. And so um, John, uh, John Wilson is kind of Superman fan par excellence. Um, he and I, what was it? We did something like six and a half hours or something like that on All-Star Superman. <laughs> we did. And that was fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. And so, you know, who better? And I'm not being rhetorical here. Literally, who better to talk about? Superman, Earth One, Volume Three, with then the one guy who I think truly understands where I'm coming from when it comes to Superman. Because, you know, John and I were talking about it a little while ago. It's not that hard to find somebody who loves Superman. I mean, it's easier now than it was back in the 90s, put it that way. But at the same time, you know, there are, you know, different people have different sensibilities of who and what Superman is supposed to be. And of all the people I've ever known in life, I get the impression that, you know, you and I have very similar sensibilities when it comes to this type of stuff. And it's not to say that, you know, we only like that one type of Superman and everything else can just go uh, die in a fire. More that we have our, we have a favorite, but we also have this sort of trying to think of a like sort of a holistic ecumenical view of superman we just have a favorite that's all that's a good way of putting it i, I mean superman's been around for you know over 75 years now and there's a lot of different superman out there and some of it i prefer over others but i i when i think of superman i think of this this idea that encompasses all of it to one extent or another mm -hmm. and so while the um 
the golden age has a distinct flair to it that I really enjoy. The silver age is this this awesome mythos of of this character that I really really love. And there's the 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 post crisis revamp. Um, I know that you're not as fond of of the more modern stuff and continuity stuff, uh, but but you know it's all Superman and there's you know there's all eras out there to enjoy well one of the things that i've wanted that i've tried very hard especially in the past couple of years i've tried very hard not to do is give another superman fan crap i mean you know they called it like back in the 80s it was called the reagan doctrine and basically it went that president reagan would never go too hard on a fellow republican right and that's kind of the attitude i have about superman fans i you know what i'm actually kind of getting to the point where Look, dude, if the new 52 is somebody's, you know, favorite Superman, well, piss on it, dude. I mean, they like Superman, so that's something. But the last thing I'm going to do is is give somebody crap over the fact that I like this and they like that. You know, it's just, it's wrong-headed. It's very wrong-headed. If I can bounce off of that for just a second, do you know the name David Gerald? Um, it rings a bell, but I don't think I know that person. David Gerald is a sci-fi writer who is most known to geekdom as the guy who wrote the Tribbles episode of Star Trek. Oh. Way back in the day. And he's done some other stuff since then. Uh, and he probably wishes he were known for some of it better than for Tribbles. But, you know, life is what it is, and that's where his claim to fame is. <laughs> uh, he actually wrote on Facebook, I, I want to say just yesterday, this lengthy post about how Star Trek fans will berate each other for liking and disliking certain kinds of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you're a fan of Star Trek and you're insulting other people because they like certain aspects of Star Trek that you're not a fan of, then you have missed the point of Star Trek. Which, you know, infinite diversity and infinite combinations, humanity all getting together and trying to move forward into the future as one body, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. I think the same ideas could be drawn for Superman fans. If you like Superman, and you like what Superman stands for, and you're going to turn around and hate on other people because they prefer different flavor of Superman than you prefer, then I think you've missed the point of being a Superman fan. Certainly missed the point of a character. Yeah, I tend to agree with that, actually. Um, And, you know, that's actually... This is one of those things that at least... Obviously, we haven't seen it yet, but that's actually one of the things about um, Man of Steel that works for me is that Jarrell, one of the things he sent Superman to Earth to do well number one you know that obviously was to save his life so let's you know I'm I'm sure you and I can agree on that but over and above that though you know you move away from that he came to Earth and he had a he had a mission and that was to lead mankind into a better tomorrow you know and it's never it's never really gotten like too specific like what that better tomorrow might look like other than to say that, you know, uh, maybe a higher level of uh, morality, a higher level of uh, peace, um, you know, brotherhood between people. And, you know, I, and I like the fact that it's just vague enough that, you know, you can impose whatever you think is a better tomorrow for mankind. Still with the idea, though, that it's Superman who's leading us there. And right. that I, I don't remember that ever really being like truly explicit in the character before All-Star Superman and even there it's more implied than anything but that's one of those things about the character 
like or that take on the character, the Man of Steel version of Superman that I really do cherish because this is something that, you know, he's yes, he's here to save lives and he's here to fly around and, you know, fight supervillains and that stuff's great. Ultimately though, there that's one phase of a larger mission. You know, what this never ending battle for truth, justice in the American way, what that really like what the end game of that really is. And he was supposed to be the hope for the Kryptonian civilization and barring that, I feel like Jor-El did, like, choose Earth. It wasn't just a, a Hail Mary pass. I mean, it was a little bit that. But Jor-El chose Earth as a target for sending his son. And he told him, you know, they may stumble, they may fall, but you can lead them into the sun. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that you're going to lead them all to, to, like, mass suicide walking into a star. That would be bad. Right. But metaphorically speaking, metaphorically into the sun. <laughs> yeah, maybe the sunlight, yes. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, the events depicted in Superman Earth-1 Volume 3 occur one week after those of Volume 2. After General Samsa's removal from the island country of Barada, the United uh, United Nations grows increasingly concerned over Superman. Dr. Alexander Luther and his wife Alexandra play the footage of Superman's battle with Tyrell, revealing that Superman is vulnerable to red solar radiation. In an unspecified desert, an extraterrestrial ship lands. A mysterious humanoid figure appears and begins to develop powers under Earth's yellow sun. He then tests his powers on a group of soldiers that appear before him, killing them all with ease. Meanwhile, Clark and Lisa celebrate the latter obtaining a job as a model. Unbeknownst to them, Lisa accidentally drops one of her earrings on Clark's couch. At the Daily Planet, Clark and Jim discuss why Lois is investigating his past. Jim reveals to Clark that Lois is jealous of Clark's Superman story. Lois subsequently warns Superman that she's learned from her uncle, a United Nations delegate, that the UN is developing failsafes against Superman. Clark decides to confront Lois over what he found out from his family and friends regarding her investigation. She reveals that she has ceased her investigation because she now sees Clark as a decent person of good character and not the type of person to fabricate a story. Meanwhile, Lisa has her proprietor, Mr. Abraham, open Clark's apartment door to find her earring. After she retrieves it, she finds Clark's Superman uniform in his closet and thus discovers his secret identity. She later tries to imply to Clark what she's learned, but he doesn't understand what she's trying to tell him. Later, when Superman goes to the scene of a collapsing bridge, another superpowered being named Zod-El appears, who says he's Superman's biological uncle. Zod claims that he's been searching for Kal-El ever since Krypton exploded. Though Superman's glad that he's not the only survivor of Krypton, he is skeptical of whether Zod truly is an ally. Elsewhere, Lois discovers melted rods from the bridge and then video footage of an unidentified flying man flying away prior to the bridge's collapse. Later, Zod addresses the United Nations, stating that the House of El caused the planet Krypton to explode and that Superman is a threat. Zod persuades the delegates that he is an ally and wants to help them kill Superman. Lois receives a phone call from her uncle and learns that Zod is responsible for the bridge's collapse. 
after which she tries to warn Superman. Zod reveals that he possesses a supply of kryptonite inside his ship, from whose radiation his lead-lined skin suit protects him. He intends to kill Superman, but Superman uses his knowledge of chemistry to cause Zod's, suits, uh, Zod's suit to dis, uh, disintegrate, forcing Zod to retreat. Superman also discovers that Zod has convinced the world's governments that he, meaning Superman, is an enemy. In the Fortress of Solitude, the AI reveals that prior to Krypton's destruction, it was in the middle of a global civil war between Zod and his brother, Superman's father, Jor-El, who had, who, who'd refused to, to join Zod. Ultimately, forces loyal to the planet's science council defeated Zod, and in retaliation, Zod gave the Daronians the weapon to destroy Krypton. Realizing that Zod intends to complete his revenge by hurting those that he cares for, Superman arrives at his apartment building and fights Zod, but he's no match for his uncle who defeats him. Luther and Lisa intervene to rescue Superman, but Luther ends up getting killed and Lisa is critically injured. Luther's red solar uh, weapon greatly weakens Zod, which allows Alexandra to shoot him. Blaming Superman for her husband's death, Alexandra vows to kill Superman, just like she did Zod. She subsequently places her, husband, her husband's corpse in suspended animation and takes Zod's kryptonite from his ship. Meanwhile, back at the hospital, Lisa recovers from her wounds and professes her love for Clark. Clark reciprocates her affection, and they become a couple. Clark subsequently takes her to Smallville, where he introduces her to his adoptive mother. Meanwhile, back at the United Nations, Superman announces that although he's disappointed that they aligned themselves with Zod, it won't deter Superman in his mission to protect Earth. Seeing their fear and noting that, uh, noting Lois's uh, Lois's astute insights, Superman asks Lois to be his political conscience from now on. The end. So, what did I think? irrelevant for the time being first because john's the guest of honor and because you know I, and i mean this you know in a, in a very friendly and respectful way you know he's obviously been you know very eager to talk about this i want to give john the mic and just let him say whatever you know the first thing that comes into mind totally unfiltered john what did you think of superman earth one volume three what'd you think okay when i read this i first reread volumes one and two mm-hmm so I could get sort of the full package of Volume 3. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that was the way to go, because Volume 3 comes along, and whereas Volume 1 and Volume 2 are very different stories, mm -hmm. Volume 3 brings together threads from both of them, making it feel like the third part of a trilogy in a really real way. And at the same time, it also feels like, even though Volume 1 was the origin story, Volume 3 feels like we have summed up an extended origin story, like 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 the greater origin story of Superman and um, Lex Luthor, and you get the Zod story going along here, and it's just all there. He's he's come to a place of understanding with with Earth, with the governments of Earth and the people of Earth, and it's 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 the final vol not the final volume because I think there's stuff that he says here that's even setting up for for future volumes. Right. But it is certainly like, like the, the last part of the opening, you know, of the Superman saga. There is a lot to um, 
this series that I think has been a bit of a dialogue with the Man of Steel film. When I reread Earth One, Volume One, I felt like whether accidentally or intentionally, it did a lot to inform Man of Steel because it came out before that film. Mm -hmm. And that I think Man of Steel did a lot to inform this book. And I hope that this book handles a lot of the themes that surely the Man of Steel sequel is going to handle. Uh, and I hope that you know it does it, that there are similar paths taken between the two. We can get into more detail on that as we go along. But uh, it took so many interesting turns. This is definitely a, its own flavor of the Superman mythos as far as how it handles things like Lex Luthor and Clark Kent's love life and uh, more specifically the nature of his relationship with Lois Lane. Mm -hmm. there's, there's just so much there that I really, really enjoyed um, and wasn't really expecting necessarily. But yeah, yes, yeah, lots of good stuff. Yeah, same thing here actually. Um, one of the things that I think has uh, that, that one of the good one one of the many good things that's come out of the whole Superman Earth One series is this concept, and I'm actually kind of fond of it myself. But this concept that Lois Lane doesn't have to be Superman's first greatest love. You know, and I think that's something that's been implicit in the Silver Age because when you think about it, you had things like Lana Lang, Lori Lamaris, and other things. So this isn't completely new territory, but this is what Lisa LaSalle represents. And there are there are four L's in that name. I mean, how punk rock is that? <laughs> but um, the thing that Lisa LaSalle kind of represents is sort of Clark's first, maybe perf maybe perfect, maybe imperfect, but his definitely his first gateway into the human race you know where for better or for worse whether anyone likes this portrayal of clark or not this was somebody who was not so much alienated as a little bit isolated and lisa gives clark kind of a um entree to planet earth that he'd never really had before and being as you know they're in a way kind of two peas in a pod it's kind of inevitable that they would eventually become attracted to each other. And, you know, what, what, what does the future hold for Lisa? Well, honestly, who the hell knows? But in the here and now, it was – if you'd asked me about it ahead of time, I would have said that I don't know how much I really would have wanted to see something like this. But seeing the way that JMS uh, brought it off, I don't know. I'm a, uh, I'm a true believer. I, I, I love Lisa LaSalle. I think she's awesome. In the words of the young folks today, I ship it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, it, it, it took me a while to actually figure out what you said, because I, I, at first I thought, you you, you what them? <laughs> what, did you eat them first? <laughs> no, I, well, I had to come up with some sort of, like, paired-up nickname for the Clark and Lisa um, relationship, if we really want to be teenagers about it. But, but yeah, yeah. Um, well, shipping that relationship is yeah. the newfangled terminology. But, yeah, um, I like Lisa. I wasn't sure really what to do with her at the end of Volume 2 a year or two ago whenever it came out. Um, well, that means well, neither did Clark, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. She came on pretty strong. Um, but I, having seen more of her personality now, I think that was kind of a play she was making. She was intentionally coming on strong because she kind of expected him to want her to be that way. Mm -hmm. And and now that she's more comfortable with him, she can be more of herself 
and she's more genuine, and they 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 flow really well together. He still is a little bit intimidated by just how much woman is attracted to him, mm-hmm. um, but but it, it plays well. Now and sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh um. Well, the thing about uh, Lisa that actually kind of bothered me in Volume 2, I liked her in Volume 1, liked her in Volume 3. Volume 2, she was basically every ex-girlfriend I had in my 20s. (laughs) And there was one in particular, look, I don't want to bore anybody with my love life, but there was one in particular that like all, like her dialogue could have been taken directly from this chick. And it's like, okay, I like this. I really like this character in the last issue. I'm really not sure, I, just because of the fact of who she reminds me of. I don't think I like her a whole lot here. I mean, there's a reason I dumped that chick, you know. So. Yeah. Well, she um, she has an interesting life, and I think Clark is really awesome about not being judgy about her being in the escort business, and and you know, with with all the moves to show women in a more genuine light in comics. Mm-hmm and give them more of a character. I think the fact that we do have one comic series out there that has a prostitute acting like a normal person. Like, the fact that she's a prostitute is almost like a footnote to our character. Um, but that's what she is. And I think that's kind of, you know, the fact that that's out there, at least in one place, doesn't need to be everywhere. We don't need to have, you know, like, prostitutes in every comic book series. But there is one title out there that's treating a, a woman character in that business as a normal person. And that's kind of cool. Um, in you know, should we go ahead and talk about her character arc in this in this issue? Uh, yeah, Volume? actually, that yeah, I was actually going to bring that up next. It, it just feels like that's kind of where the conversation wants to go anyway. So yeah, go for it. Because I did not see that coming. Um, I expected halfway for them to get together more, something to be happened with their romance. Either it would it would develop or it would fall apart, one or the other. Um, but the idea of her actually discovering that he is Superman and then trying to talk to him about it and trying to let him know that she knows without saying, by the way, I know that you're Superman. That was so well played. And at the end of the story, whenever she's in the uh, hospital bed and she's all hopped up on drugs, and she's like, I love you. It was just really sweet at the end. And she saves the day. And she does. Yeah, and that's the other thing. Um, and that actually kind of leads into one of the, the kind of the, the story's main themes, that so much of, of the strife and chaos and problems that comes from the Superman Earth-1 universe, ultimately it really does come down to Zod. You know, this is, these are all basically the actions of one man who has, lacking any better way to put it, royally screwed things up for everybody else. And so you could fairly well say that the entire series sort of turns on this one person's bad decisions, right? This specific story, though, Volume 3, it doesn't – I mean I, I don't want to go so far as to say it doesn't, does not turn on Lisa's uh, decision to save Clark because there's a very good probability, in fact, that she saved his life. She definitely changed the odds. But – that was one of the things that I think that uh, JMS is really trying to uh, work toward in all of these uh, books is this idea that, as corny as it may sound, one person truly can make a difference. And it's not always a positive difference, but sometimes it can save, it, it can save lives. It can 
very possibly change the course of, of, of mankind. One person doing what they truly believe to be the right thing, especially whenever this is a, deci a, a decision that's motivated by love, loyalty, friendship, and basically all of the best virtues of life, you know, beautiful, beautiful things can come from that. And there is no better example of all of that anywhere in this series, as far as I know, than Lisa. And there's something I want to say that spins off of that, but I have another thought about Lisa to come back to after this. Um, one of the themes of Volume 2 was the different kinds of threats that Superman has to address. Because he has the whole Barada thing where he puts down an, uh, an evil regime that comes back to bite him in the ass in, in this issue, as it should. I'm so glad they picked up on that uh, in this issue. Um, but he, was, he had other various levels of threats that he was trying to deal with in, in Volume 2, and that was a theme there. In this book, I think one of the themes that recurs is the different ways that people unexpectedly can help Superman. Because mm -hmm. you have Lois, who gets there too late, but she does try to come and give Superman the information he needs to save Zod. And then you have um, the government and the military who should be trying to help Superman against an alien threat, choosing not to. And then you have um, Helix, which is what I'm calling the male Lex Luthor, um, as opposed to the real Lex Luthor in this story. Mm -hmm. um, you have Helix, who comes to save the day as well at the end with his um, depowering ray that he shoots Zod with. So you have all these people who are giving of themselves, making a difference, or at least trying to make a difference, or completely refusing to make a difference in Superman's life and in his, his mission and in his fight. Agreed. Now, um, and I guess... It was, in, just, it was, it was an interesting theme. I'm going to have actually a lot to say about, uh, you know, at least a few of those, but, I, I, but I, uh, first I want to give you a chance to uh, uh, say what you had in mind about Lisa. Okay, since Ma Kent brought it up in this issue, I just wanted to weigh in on the whole sex thing from last issue, yep. if I could. Yep. Okay, because last volume, um, Clark was faced with the question of whether or not to have sex with a woman, mm -hmm. a human girl, uh, frailty, and all that other stuff. Right. And JMS seemed very much to wait to, to fall on the Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex side of things. But I have to say, and I'm sure this is nothing um, strange to you, since we're both, you know, human males of, you know, normal testosterone levels. Mm -hmm. um, I have the feeling that Clark Kent would have known exactly how his body was going to respond in certain situations way before he ever actually got to have those situations with the girl. Uh, yeah, not to put too fine a point on it. Yes, I'm sure he would. <laughs> and so, I mean, they, they played it the way they played it, not saying they were wrong to do so. It's just that if I were behind the editor's desk or the writing pen, I would have played that out differently. That whenever Clark, as an adult male, got the chance to get involved with an adult woman, he would have known exactly what to expect. And so he should have made that decision to be or not to be with Lisa out of knowledge, not out of fear and ignorance. Well, and... <laughs> This is one of those things I feel like I can sort of half-ass justify. Uh, when you think about it, um, sex is – in fiction, it, it can represent so many different things, not least of which is a complete and total emotional acceptance of the other person. And 
being as the series up to this point has wanted to put Clark a little bit on the outside, it's harder to sell him as an uh, as that when you show that he's getting laid, you know. And so I can see that. You know, I I, I think it's maybe a bit naive, but I don't know. That's just the way I think about it. But it's just it's one of those things that yeah, don't stop to think about it too much because, like you say, it doesn't totally add up. The the series does do a lot, I think, through metaphor. I think JMS is commenting on the idea of Superman as well as telling a story about Superman. So he could have just been wanted to say something. And, and I like the way you're interpreting it on that, because you're right. The, the idea of an alien hero being accepted or not accepted by the populace is a little bit harder to play with if he's, you know... Getting laid at home, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, and and honestly, it does kind of. And now that now that you said that, one of the things that it also does is, it it does kind of. Look, I I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to make it sound like that's the end all be all of life. But you know, whenever somebody dies at a young age, one of the things, especially their parents, but I think people in general just can't help themselves thinking is. You know, there are so many things that they're never going to get to do. They're never going to get to fall in love. They're never going to get to, you know, get married, have children, get old, you know, have careers, you know, do things like that. Right. And that is one of the – when I started thinking about it, you know, that bit at the end where Superman is just getting the crap slammed out of him, that is – I hate to say it. That's one of the things that it has to be on your mind. I mean here's a guy that, you know, has been – in a lot of ways, kind of isolated uh, his entire life, he's done fundamentally the right thing by becoming Superman and trying to help people and trying to make a difference. And here he is. He's basically being murdered for it when uh, there's so much of his life. Just as a – forget about the superhero aspect. Just as a man, as a person, so many things that are still ahead of him that he – that I think are, are, are just part of the human condition that if Zod has his way, he's not ever going to get to experience. And there is that – tragic element that again it's not like you know you can die happy well at least i got laid but again it does kind of that's it, when that's one of the list that when that's on the list of things that you haven't done the list of things that you're going to miss out on forever again it, it does kind of add a little bit to the pathos of it i saw a movie once and damned if i can recall what it's titled because i wanted to go back and watch and i honestly can't remember what it's called mm-hmm. um but um one of the plot elements of the film is this high school age boy crushing on his attractive female teacher. He might not even been high school age. He might have been like middle school age, because mm-hmm. uh, his his ideas and attitudes towards sexuality were very naive and very much because he was young and had no actual experience with it. Mm-hmm. But one thing that she said is kind of apropos here is. When you're young and you haven't had it yet, it's this big, huge thing. And once you've had it, sex is sex. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's good sex and there's bad sex and there's just fucking and whatever else. But whenever, it, whenever love and the physical consummation of a romantic relationship with a person is 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 a non-existent thing for a person, mm-hmm. that's sad if they get you know if they die or are going to die without ever being there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once you're an adult and you've been there, it's, it seems like much less of a thing, but yeah, to miss it is, is, is big. Yeah, I agree. 
And wow, who would have thought I'd have that uh, that much to say about <laughs> that on my show? So, wow, didn't see that coming. Um, and I guess since we're talking about you know this sort of showdown at the end of uh, the book, as you say, I mean this is really sort of the leftovers from Superman's invasion and assisted coup in the island nation of Barada. Now. This is one of those things that I'm sure that, you know, people who listen to that episode probably had a point of view about. Because one of the things I said was that, um, my, I guess my point was, you know, what right does Superman have to determine really any government, you know? And my, the example I used was that if, you know, if you consider yourself to be a Democrat, imagine Superman overthrowing the United States government and handing it over to the Tea Party. Or if you're a Republican, imagine Superman overthrowing the democratically elected government of the United States and then giving it to Code Pink or, or, or just whatever you, the extreme of the opposite of your uh, ideology is. All right. It may sound good on paper that Superman go out there, right wrongs and fix injustices and all that stuff. But end of the day, there are certain things that Superman should not do. Right. And it only sounds good if your morality is, is mostly in line with the person doing the overthrowing. Right. Because there are plenty of people who are heartfelt, diehard believers that our way of life is not the way things are supposed to be. And if Superman had been brought up with that ideology, you know, forget Republican versus Democrat, you know, talk about West versus East and, and capitalist versus not and, you know, uh, free thinking ways of life versus controlled thinking ways of life. There, there's a whole lot of, of bad ways of living out there, and you would not want to be replaced with one of those. Yeah, and the, the I, other thing I is... Should, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't have said bad. Different that we do not like. Fair enough, right. But And, and, that, and that leads into, as we were saying just a while ago, to me this is maybe the crucial difference between... Superman Earth-1 versus Man of Steel, and then he's here ultimately, in the movies, I mean, he's here ultimately to sort of make, I guess, a positive influence, right? Steer things in, a, in an ultimately more beneficial direction. Not necessarily this, and, and, and again, I, I don't want to be partisan about this, so please don't interpret it that way, but this sort of George W. Bush idea of spreading democracy and everything as if democracy is the default best form of government there's ever been. When right. I think history tells us a very different story. And that and, and so just the fact that he did it, you know, no matter what the outcome of it was, the fact that he did it bad enough that it happened. But on top of all of that, you know, Superman in directly or indirectly now has blood on his hands and that I I forget the guy's name now, but the uh, dictator of Barada is—he's he, a fucking dead man. Let's you know, and yeah. it's Superman's fault. And now Superman. And who, and who knows what happened the next day in that country? Yeah. You know, you, you you take a vacuum of power. Civil wars usually result out of that sort of thing. Right. And you know, and, and end of the day, you know, Superman—he's—it's great for him to swoop into a burning building and rescue orphans and stuff like that. But when you start setting yourself up as I guess the uh, the final arbiter of geopolitics I, dude who the hell do you think you are you know and that was my main outrage at Superman Earth 1 Volume 2 and I had this 
maybe it was a little immature, but I kind of had a little bit of a meltdown over it because, you know, damn it, this is not what Superman is supposed to do. Superman, I, mean, I, I think, you know, he's very much within his rights to make public statements saying, you know, that's not the way that things ought to be. But taking matters into your own hands like that and then knocking the country down, you know, I'm sorry, that is wrong. And that sort of came back, like you said, that kind of that came back to haunt him in, in, in this, that that was one of the motivating factors in the United States government collaborating with Zod. They realized that, you know, you know, it's at least theoretically possible now that he might do this. What if tomorrow he decides he doesn't like us? What happens then? And so Zod comes along. He makes them basically the offer that they'd been hoping for. They take him up on it. I don't want to make this sound, you know, too bad, you know, because it does kind of it does kind of call the government's uh, sympathies into question, or rather the reader's sympathies for the government into question, that they were going to stand there and just let somebody get beaten to death. But at the end of the day, I mean, Superman kind of did this to himself. And I'm happy that that moment from uh, Volume 2 didn't just get swept under the rug and we act like nothing happened. This was a good thing. JMS did it on purpose, and I'm actually very happy that, you know, Something came out of that, you know, and that, and, and that, I guess, is my point. Sorry, I know I've been interrupting you. No, that's fine. It's fine. It's a lesson that had to be learned, and he owns up to that in this issue. Uh, he says, you know, that is something that I my intentions were good. I, I believe in why I was doing what I was doing, but the act of doing it is probably a mistake, and I'm going to try not to make those mistakes again in the future. Um, and Lois helps him realize that. And, I, and you know, as, as little interaction as Lois and Superman have had in these three issues, mm-hmm. um, the fact that Lois is becoming his sort of informant slash confidant without any sort of romance or even maybe even friendship being there, but more just like a collaboration type of thing. Mm-hmm. I like. I like that that's there. But yeah, um, your reaction to the events in Volume 2 um, also made me glad that they followed up on it and gave those things some resolution here in Volume 3. And since we're going to keep bringing it up, because I think they're, the, the two narratives have a lot to say about each other, I'm hoping that Man of Steel follows course. Because the events of Man of Steel, both the city devastation... I mean, Lois basically, some, in this volume, Lois sums up Man of Steel. She says, one big fight leveled part of Metropolis, another poked holes in the planet. We've had an invasion. And that's Man of Steel right there. And on top of all that, Superman, a character who, you know, some people think should do no wrong and, and take no life, kills a guy at the end to save the day. Mm-hmm. Whether or not he should have done that is not the question I'm bringing up, but the fact that those issues should have some repercussions in the narrative mm-hmm. are things that I hope the writers of Man of Steel and its sequels are taking into account. Uh, well, far be it from me to... You know, it's kind of funny. The the people who are listening to this show right now know so much more about Batman v Superman than you and I do right this moment. So <laughs> That's true. It, 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 you know, the irony here isn't lost on me, but, you know, I'm... And you know what? This is a good time to maybe put my predictions to the test. You know, my gut instinct is to say that whatever it is that happened in Man of Steel isn't going to be 
just foundational to, you know, this is the way that we introduce Superman for the real movie we want to do, which is Batman v Superman. This is going to be part of Batman v Superman's story. And that's it's it Zack Snyder just feels like that type of filmmaker to me. He's going to be honest with the material in that way. And I think he's going to show us the people of really the world, but specifically Metropolis react to that. But the way that it is right now, you know, Superman appears uh, in Volume 3. He appears before the United Nations. And this is where, for me, the worm kind of turns. Now, I really enjoyed Earth 1 Volume 1. I really liked Volume 2 with some reservations. Volume 3, I really, really love it, and I really, really hate it. And Superman addressing the United Nations is pretty much why. Not so much the points that he makes, because, you know, this needed to be done. So I don't begrudge him that. What bugs me is this whole, what the hell were you thinking? And this kind of early 20-something hipster dialogue that JMS gave him. You know, I get it. You know, all, all of this stuff. But And, he, and, and it's, it's almost like this kind of veiled threat that he makes at the very end, too. Never do that again. You know, and... I understand, you know, this he's not there really to make threats, but there is room for this to be taken as a fucking threat. All right? I think a better solution might have been uh guys, mea culpa. I understand why you did what you did. Almost killed me. You guys made your point. I don't have anywhere else to go and I'm here to help. And ultimately, I can and I'm probably the only one who can protect you from this type of threat again in the future. So we're here now together. Let's make the most of it. I've made mistakes, and I will not make those mistakes ever again. I promise. But we've got to figure out a way to coexist. And, you know, or something like that. I mean, I'm just making this stuff up as I go along. But, you know, but this whole what the hell were you thinking and the hipster dialogue and that never do that again thing. That just, uh, that's, I, I, that just bothered me. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I actually really dug that last scene. <laughs> but I can see uh, how it could have played differently. I think at the end of the day, there might be two different ways of expressing the same set of emotions mm-hmm. or, or, or responding to the same situation. Then... And how we express our emotions is every bit as important or more important than the emotions themselves. So, um, you know, I don't know. I'm reading the book here and I'm seeing Zod. And whether a man presents himself to you as the only other survivor of your dead native planet or as the only solution to the problem of this alien superpowered being that you have to deal with as a governmental body, mm-hmm. when a guy walks up to you dressed like the fucking shredder, he, he's, he's, he's someone you should be careful of. I mean, the Shredder is never a good guy. Yeah. And, and, and that's, <laughs> that's who Zod was. I mean, he's got these big old knives on his arms, and he's just as powerful as Superman. I mean, Superman, sure, he has the, the heat vision and the super strength, and, and he's, he's, you know, if he went off half-cocked, he'd be a walking bomb. But at least he dresses nice. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy's got knives on his arms, and he's telling you that he's going to help you save the day. And you can never see his face or see his eyes. I don't know. I just, Zod's a... 
Yeah, it, it really is a step away from, you know, giving him a black cowboy hat, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't dislike the way they handled Zod in this in this story, but um, but he certainly did not go very far to act like a good guy beyond his words. His words to Superman were a lie. His words to the government were, although true as far as they went, certainly had a, an ulterior motive if he won at the end of it all. Um, but anyways, so I agree with you and disagree with you at the same time. Well, and that actually kind of leads into something. I mean, when you think about it, the villain of the piece could scarcely be somebody other than Zod. So in relation to that, I guess I understand, but at the same time, obviously we had Terrence stamp as, uh, Zod in Superman and Superman two. Right, And those are probably his two most iconic portrayals. But since then, there's been Zod in crap loads of comics. We, we had Zod in uh, Smallville. We had Zod in Man of Steel. And now we've gotten more Zod in Earth 1 Volume 3. And it, it kind of feels like, you know, a lot of people are kind of done now with the Joker. They've pretty much had their fill of the Joker and popping up in Batman stories and everything. And that's kind of where I am now with with Zod. I've pretty much had enough. Um, that having been said, though, one of the things that has, it has always kind of, I guess, informed my sensibilities about who uh, Superman is. Yeah, look, he's a, he, he's a nice guy. He's a hero. He's here to help, etc., etc. End of the day, though, he's Clark Kent. And Clark Kent, grew up in the country. Clark Kent knows how to beat some ass. And that is the version of Superman that we see here. This is a kid that got into fights all the frickin' time back when he was a kid. And when Zod... When it's time to roll with Zod, this isn't a guy who's never done this before. He knows what to do. He knows how to handle himself in a fight. And I would even go so far as to say... That's probably the only thing that kept him alive. Because if he was a complete rookie when it comes to uh, throwing with somebody, I don't know that he would have been able to survive. Yeah. He seems to have actually more of that kind of um, skill set to him than Henry Cavill's Superman had. Um, Agreed. And I, this is one of those things where I think the, the book is actually responding to Man of Steel rather than the other way around. Uh, is that, you know, Henry Cavill's Superman was superpowered and had the accustomedness to the, his superpowers on his side. Mm -hmm. And that was his one advantage over Zod. And then Zod took that away at the end. This, uh, this Superman, you know, I'm not sure what happened with what bullies, but... He evidently got into some fights as a kid and managed to not kill anybody and yet still hold his own. Um, so seeing that play out here is something I liked. And it's something that I think would play into other flavors of Superman, such as the Golden Age Superman or Grant Morrison's Action Comics Superman. Right. Um, a Superman who can throw down and actually fight and yet not kill people who are made out of Kleenex. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, 
I, I, some things about the Zod that I liked were that before we know, know that the character is Zod, mm-hmm. like from the first page, they're teasing this is going to be Zod whenever they put the little Z dash dash at the end of mm-hmm. the Krypton uh, scene. Uh, before, but before we really, really know that it's Zod, before he pretends to be Clark's friend, we know that he's evil. Because the first thing he does when he lands on Earth is kill a platoon yeah. or a regiment or whatever that you know word is for that group of military guys. Um, so I liked that. Killed the shit out of him, too. Yeah. Like, not even kidding. <laughs> is this the first time that Zod has been portrayed as a member of the House of El? To my knowledge, yeah. Um, up to the, And you know what? I, I gotta say, that leads into something that I've been wanting to uh, maybe set the record straight on. Um, maybe it was... News it was something, I forget who, Newsarama, it was somebody. But basically, JMS made a, a comparison to, uh, what is it, Richard III? I forget, it was, it was something or other. But basically, you know, who is the Iago in this story? Or whatever that character's name is. You know, who's the, basically, who's the, turn, the, the, the turncoat family member, right? And I suggested that it might be... Jarrell, simply because he's the only family member anybody seemed to know. No one had ever specifically mentioned Zod as a family member. And I guess number three, there hadn't been any other Kryptonian that had gotten any type of character development whatsoever. Not that Jarrell had gotten much, but whatever there was to be had, Jarrell had gotten. And so I felt like that was a justifiable decision at the time. But I don't know. I mean, it's like on the one hand, it like the villain could not could not have been anybody other than Zod. But at the same time, I do feel like I'm kind of sick of Zod. And so, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm being overly critical or anything, but, you know, that there you have it. So I wouldn't say I've had my fill of Zod. Um, but at the same time, I'm kind of glad that Man of Steel has done that. And so future film series can do their own thing. Right. I'm kind of hoping that Supergirl TV show does not use Zod, at least not anytime in the near future. Um, and you know, the one area of Zod that I really have almost zero experience with is the pre-crisis Zod. Right. Who, um, you know, you, you see him briefly in one panel in the issue that introduces the Phantom Zone projector as this guy who tried to conquer Krypton with an army of Bizarro Zods. Right. And, and they're wearing like these, uh, like, gymnastics. And then after that, he's just... Yeah. And after that, he's just this, like, floaty phantom in a purple military suit with a big, you know, army hat on. And, I, you know, whatever they do with him in the later Silver Age and Bronze Age, I have no idea what it was that made him so cool that they put him in the first Christopher Reeve film. But um, but as far as modern Zod, yeah, I can see how you'd be done with them. I guess I could I I, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe the sentiment I'm expressing is that I'm kind of done too because I don't really want to see him anymore anytime soon. Hmm. New Fifty Two did, did their take on him right around the time the movie came out, and it was pretty cool. And he's back in the Phantom Zone where he belongs. So. Oh okay. Well that's uh, that's awesome. Um, one of the things that this that this book did. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here, at least not too much, but I did call 
when I was talking about um, the second book, it was who Lex Luthor in this in this iteration of the Superman mythos is going to prove to be. Yes. And obviously, and I, hmm? go ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying, and I hadn't really put the two and two together in the way that you did whenever I heard you talking about it. And once you said that, I was like, of course, that's the way it's going to have to play out. Um, and it turned out to be right. But I, you know, before Helix and the real Lex had their playing out at the end of the story, I did love their dynamic. The way they played off of each other, like during the presentation of um, the Superman fight from volume one, there was there was a lot going on there. And the way that they're talking about the audience of just being so intellectually dull and like it's talking to a, a room full of goldfish or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that middle school math is, you know, teaching middle school math is like that. But I'm just saying that, you know, teaching middle school math has its moments. <laughs> oh, that's good. But I well, like the he likes is more the science brain and the real likes is more the pragmatic brain. And together they're this entity that now that half of it's gone, I'm really intrigued on what kind of role and what kind of um, schemes, I guess, that Lex Luthor is going to get up to. Well, and I, you know, I am as well. And one of the things, though, that I, I had truly never considered about Lex Luthor, whether it's, you know, she Lex here, or if it's just you know regular Lex from any other version of Superman, she she has this line of uh, uh, dialogue that she's going through with Ma- uh, Major Lee, and she says, "Do you have any idea what it's like to have an IQ at the far end of the bell curve, and be absolutely." utterly alone any idea what it means to believe that you'll go through your whole life without someone to talk to at your own level until one day blah 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 and i realized you know what that is one of the most informative parts of who lex luther truly is like whenever you know he or she this uh, this version of lex or the comic book the other comic book version you know just whatever you know this is a guy who is in his own way is every bit as kind of outside as Superman is. Right. But for different reasons, and ultimately is shaped in different ways by it. And the one thing that she, that obviously Lex in, in Volume 3 wanted was was that connection with somebody, that, you know, there was, she had a peer out there, somebody that wasn't a, a cave-dwelling, mouth-breathing troglodyte she could be herself with. Whatever right. that meant. Not that they're always, you know, uh, breaking down, you know, particle physics or anything like that. But that, you know, whoever she is at the inner, at, at her inner core, she didn't have to censor that. She didn't have to protect it anymore. And then she loses it. Not because of Superman, but that's not how she sees it. It is Superman's right. Way. And Lex Luthor, more than anything, for his character or her character, needs a reason to hate Superman beyond reason and this story provided a pretty damn good one I agree and so I guess what I'm saying is yeah I may maybe I you know uh, called it but at the same time JMS went further with it than I was um, 
originally expecting, you know, like his insight into the character. I was just grasping at this strictly from a plot point of view. He was the one that worked out all the dynamics and every like character dynamics. And um, this is I, re I of all things that are th that's coming in the future. This is something that I'm actually really looking forward to. Um, th there's a lot of potential with this. Yeah, I, I really, really like it. Um, and I like that before her Helex, the male Lex, died, that we saw that he was a very different person at his core to his... his uh, for some reason, I want to keep calling him her, his sister. Yeah. Calling, but they're not brother-sister, because that'd be weird. They're, yeah. they're married. Um, but he's a very different person at heart than she is. And she, while being slightly more cynical and pragmatic about life than her husband, has now been driven farther down that spectrum. I agree. Um, I don't know, all around, this is, that was one of the coolest parts. And, you know, it, it's strange to think of, you know, how the, uh, the male-female dynamic is going to affect this version of the Superman-Lex Luthor rivalry. So, I don't know. I'm really interested to see what's coming. So, all right. So, uh, John, I think what we uh, probably need to do right now, just so I can go outside and have a cigarette, I um, just want to take a little break, and, um, you know, we can put a pin in all this. We'll, come, we'll be right back after these messages. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, can I always it then? Okay, okay, here we go. <clears throat> Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The Captain America. Wow. Being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You, you're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, mm -hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. So that's not the King Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So, um... Maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website. 
cmro.travis-starns.com and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad, don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh, yeah, Avengers Inspirations Podcast. Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you. Continuing, and I think probably soon to wrap up, our conversation about Superman Earth One, Volume Three. And one of the things that we kind of sort of left on the table during, uh, during our last uh, portion of the conversation was goings on specifically with, with uh, Lois Lane. Because let's face it, she is a very crucial, very important part of the Superman mythos. And it's strange to think that she's not really had a major role to play yet in the Earth-1 universe, but Volume 3 is where that kind of starts to change a little bit, in as much as she's pretty much put her investigation into Clark Kent on pause, although the fact that the investigation took place is it's a little bit more on the table now uh, between Clark and Lois. But then there's also the fact that she's going to have a role to play, sort of... I, in, a, in an odd kind of way, this almost reminds me of the role that Lois played for the Red and Blue Blur back in uh, the eighth season of Smallville, where Lois was sort of unwittingly Clark's mouthpiece to the world. She was unofficially, I don't want to say his press agent exactly, but he was her contact. And this is it kind of, it's going to kind of be going the other way in that Lois is going to give... I don't completely understand why this is totally necessary. She's going to kind of give Clark the human perspective on things. And for his part, Superman is going to give her... Uh, I don't know, an entree into his, into his world. And so they're going to have... I wasn't entirely sure what she's getting out of it more than... I don't know, the ability to talk to Superman. <laughs> yeah, the only thing I can think is that, you know, maybe Clark sees a, a little bit of a conflict of interest in Superman being Clark Kent's guy. And so and what he's decided to do is give Superman to Lois and maybe just sort of minimize all of that. That's really the most I was able to come up with because, strictly speaking, the only real claim that Lois, or really only connection that Lois has to any of this is the fact that she was there during Tyrell's invasion, and really she played her part in saving Superman's bacon. Otherwise, there's... It, it, I don't want to go so far as to say it's kind of arbitrary, but it is a little arbitrary that it be her. It, it's got... I mean, she's got to have some kind of, you know, entry point into the story. And she's one of the few, to be fair to her, she is one of the few that sees the big picture of what Superman's trying to accomplish. And so, it's... It's not a perfect fit, but it's not a terrible fit either. 
Well, she's been a bit of a reaction to things so far. You know, a sideline player who sees what's going on and, and is reacting and responding to it without really being a player in the game itself. Um, one could argue that Lisa LaSalle actually has a much larger part to play, not just in Clark's life, but in Superman's life right. during Volume 3 than Lois has. Um, but it seems like that's going to change. And as far as why Superman would need her there, I don't think it really goes beyond anything else except, you know, the two heads are better than one, wisdom of the crowds. He saw that he made a mistake, and he saw that she saw that it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. So he sees her mind as being something that could help him. In, in as non-romantic a way as possible, it's, I think, the kind of connection that draws a lot of spouses together. You know, that someone sees a compliment in another person, mm-hmm. a, a completion. There are strengths that this person has that I don't have. And there are weaknesses that person has that I think I could help with. And, you know, that, that's a bit of a, of a way to draw two people together. Um, but so far, to Clark, she's nothing romantic. She's just a co-worker. Mm-hmm. And um, a somewhat manipulative, but she owns up to it. And while not apologizing for it, says that, you know, that's over and done with. I don't need to keep checked up on your background. And for Superman, she's a would-be contact. She, she uh, is an informant and uh, maybe even a confidant. But um, there's one little nugget from Lois Lane in this story that I'd like to bring out. Sure. It's not anything important, but it's just like, oh, I saw what they did there. Okay. So I am the host of the world-famous um, podcast, Golden Age Superman, mm-hmm. because... Um, Five out of 12 congressmen can't be wrong. And uh, there's a Sunday newspaper strip story in which Lois Lane has an uncle that dies. Okay. And that uncle's name, of all things, is Bill Bigsby. (laughs) I shit you not. Okay, so this is a 1940s story from like, you know, well before Bill Bigsby was a thing. Mm-hmm. And that's the name of this uncle. And so in the story, she, uh, someone says, you know, do you still have the uncle who works, who has a, you know, informant in the Pentagon or whatever the dialogue is. And she's like, well, then there's the other uncle I had who died a few years ago. Uh, and, and I immediately picked up my ears. And so later when she's talking to the living uncle, she calls him uncle Bill. Oh, and I have no idea how accidental that was. Surely it had to be accidental. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, the you, only you talk about an, that story. Yeah, you talk about an esoteric reference right there. I mean, shit, I never knew that. <laughs> but once she said a dead uncle, because it was Bill Bixby, that story stuck in my head, mm-hmm. um, and will always, you know, be in my head as, as part of Superman's history. But but yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't know if that was intentional or accidental. I. I would bet a cat that it was probably accidental, but it'd be kind of cool if it wasn't. Yeah, no, I agree. Wow, that's that's awesome. You know, and I don't know that you know little winks like that. I, I just I love it whenever a creator, even if I don't necessarily catch it, but somebody points it out later. Uh, love it, love it, love it. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I 
what I think is JMS is what I think is going on is he's building up to Lois eventually uh, playing a larger role in in Superman's world. And when you think about it, it is kind of traditional that she be sort of the center of his attention pretty much right away. It doesn't have to be that way, though. And, I mean, that's not written in stone. And so because of that, you know, I, one of the things that I really do admire about uh, Earth One is that JMS knows where, by and large, he knows where he can be flexible with the story and the legend and the myth and everything. And he also knows where he needs to be absolutely honest and straightforward with it. And he does have a really good balance between those two things. And it, it, it does play for me really well. Yeah. So now there is now one thing I could see him doing. I don't necessarily want this, mm-hmm. but he could be just taking the scenic path toward Clark and Lois getting together and trying to make it as natural and organic as possible. And you don't want um, that? Well, I don't want to lose Lisa. <laughs> and I have a feeling that Lisa LaSalle's exit point is going to be pulling a Gwen Stacy. Yeah. Um, um, hmm. And I don't think that I want that. Now, it could be, she being a redhead and all, that Lisa is a crypto Lana Lang. That, or, or a cipher for Lana Lay, I think mm-hmm. is the phrasing I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and that since she's in Clark's life in Metropolis, JMS didn't use the Lana Lang name, but is basically, she's basically fulfilling that same kind of role, his first true love. And at some point he'll move away from her and go and be with Lois. But I don't want that to happen because, you know, he has made, he, he has played with my emotions exactly the way he intended to. And I like Lisa and want her to stay. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those things I was actually going to be content to let JMS kind of just do his thing. But yeah, I, I would hate to see Lisa go too, especially for something along the lines of, because uh, if you ask me, and different people, I guess, are going to have different opinions. But if you ask me, Superman doesn't need a Gwen Stacy. You know, uh, the the girl that you know under other circumstances had she lived. That would have been the one. And then Lois is kind of a consolation. I don't think that necessarily works to benefit the character. I mean, obviously, I've never seen it done, so who the hell knows? I just don't see the necessity of it, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't see it as being necessary either. Um, he doesn't, he, you're right, he does not need that in his life. And they killed Gwen Stacy because they didn't know what else to do with her except for make them get married. They didn't want to make them get married, so they killed her. Um so, what did you think of the super signal? Uh, I. This is one of those things that, like, in and of itself, it's not. I mean, it was used cleverly and all of that stuff, but this is. It's very recognizably a Batman trope, and there, especially in this in this day and age, there are so many other ways for Lois to get. Superman's attention, you know, not, I mean, maybe not to, you know, establish that first contact. Maybe she needed something like this, um, you know, to start out with. But I think that sooner or later, you know, they buy disposable cell phones or do something to find secure ways to communicate with one another immediately, you know? And, you know, the whole idea of any kind of signal, really, 
whether it's the bat signal, the super signal, just whatever else. Look, the, you know, whenever we had very limited communications technology, as we did back in the 30s and the 40s and stuff, that kind of stuff actually makes a lot of sense, you know, and especially since, you know, big cities were still smaller then than they are now as far as urban sprawl is concerned. And so, you know, maybe someone could see a searchlight hitting the clouds from the other side of town. Really couldn't do that now. And so, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, this is just, it's one of those relics from the past that no one's ever really figured out. No one really has the heart to get rid of, but no one's really figured out how to make relevant. And let's face it, this is a hell of a lot more iconic than than using disposable cell phones, you know? It's just got that visual element that comics depend on. But if if, if you just think about it from a strictly technological and rational point of view, it really doesn't make sense. And when you think about it, I guess from the Batman point of view, Superman doesn't need this. All right, there's got to be another way. I don't know what the hell the you know the other way is. There's got to right. be another way. Well, and with Batman, it's it's one of the gimmies. You know, it's one of the things about Batman's mythos that if you're going to get into Batman, the bat signal is just one of those things. Even if you think that, you know. Well, if he's really two miles away from it in the city, then the curvature of the Earth is going to make it almost impossible to see for one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you if you rationalize it, then the bat signal should not make sense at all. But it does because we accept it because of Batman, just like Clark's glasses. Right. It's one of those things. That if you think about it too hard, it should not make sense. But it's a gimme. It's part of part of the part and parcel of the character. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having one of Batman's gimmies playing into Superman's story while I liked the story beat and I thought it was funny and fun. Um, you're right that they need to come up with a replacement as a one-time idea. Sure. And as Superman, as soon as Superman said that, um, it could have been like lighting a signal flare for any enemy to come along and attack. Um, I really have expected Zod to do just that. I did at too. Some point during the story. Yeah. And so maybe that was one of the things set up for next time. I don't know. Um, well, I, but they do need something. Well, you know what? And when you think about it in an odd kind of way, he did. Because he did fire off the super signal specifically to lure Superman into a trap. But uh, I don't know. And then, and if that was the only you know Batman moment that this story had, I might have been willing to overlook it. You know, it's just kind of a clever little wink, uh, you know, to Batman. But, you know, maybe this is where Batman gets the idea. You know, who knows? There's this other moment, though, towards the end, uh, closer to the end of the story, where, uh, number one, Superman does Batman's, you know, kind of trademark vanishing trick, which, let's face it, that's going to be a lot easier for Superman to do than Batman. So it (laughs) kind of lacks that mystery aspect. But then the other thing is we see the super signal again at the end of the story, and it's this kind of, it's this splash page, it's this sort of sweeping, iconic sort of moment, and... What I think we're and, and Lois is even wearing a trench coat on the roof of uh, of the building, <laughs> and it's almost like yeah. we're let we're to believe that this is going to be you know how they connect with each other from now on. And and again, there's I don't want to beat this to death because you know it, there's an argument that this actually works better for Superman because of you know the practical uh, nature of like you were saying the curvature of the Earth. You wouldn't be able to see it from miles away. Superman can. So, you know, that actually does add up. It's just, this fundamentally is Batman's thing, and I'm just not comfortable with it. And 
there are a couple of instances of, you know, Batman isms creeping into a, what I think is a Superman story. And I'm of the opinion that Batman is at his best when he's Batman. Superman's at his best when he's Superman. And it's okay, I guess, once in a while to kind of, you know, mix tropes with one another for dramatic or comedic effect or, or whatever else. But by and right. large, they have clear identities and they need to remain distinct from one another. And I've just kind of got, you know, because it almost feels like there's this sort of tacit admission at play that, well, Superman's not cool enough to, to you know, just be Superman. we got to make him more like Batman. And that line of thought, it just feels to me like there are people at Warner Brothers and there are people at DC Comics who truly do believe that. And right. it, it, it almost feels like that sort of ethic is at times creeping in on Superman. No one ever and, says that Su Batman needs to be more like Superman, and damn it, to me, Superman's the more aspirational role model, you know? So fuck him. <laughs> and, and, and as much as we are, you know, in these episodes celebrating Superman and Batman as we lead toward the, uh, the team-up movie that everyone has always wanted, mm -hmm. um, Batman and Superman together on a movie together, mm -hmm. there's, there is a certain resentment that I feel whenever anything of Superman is co-opted in, into Batman. Because, like, like, if Lex Luthor is playing off of Batman more frequently and better in modern comics than he's playing off of Superman, to me, that's a problem. Batman has a rogues gallery. It's a good rogues gallery. And while I'm, I've enjoyed the Jeff Johns Justice League with Lex Luthor involved... Um, I, I kind of want Lex Luthor to go back to being a, a Superman villain or a League villain who's opposed to Superman first yeah. instead of a foil for Bruce Wayne and Batman. Right. Um, and so similarly, when they're bringing Batman tropes into Superman's world, he doesn't need them. So I liked the story beat. I thought it was fun as a one-time thing in this issue. But uh, I go back to what you said earlier, that they need to, dev they need to use that as a springboard for something different not to just keep using this signal. Right. And, yeah, and uh, I stand by that. So, anyway, it's not worth having a hissy fit over, at least not until Volume 4 comes out, and then they're still using the shit. And then <laughs> you and I may have actually a very different conversation at that time. But um, the way that it is right now, though, uh, one of and – th and this, again, is going back to one of the sort of negative points of the book – one of the things that I really, really, really missed in this in this book was the art by Shane Davis. I'm not saying that uh, Ardian Saif is a bad artist or anything, but this book had established a very clear and I think kind of distinct visual identity with Shane Davis's art. And I'll be and I'd be lying to you, dude, if I told you that there were several sequences where I wasn't just I guess on the kind of angsting over, you know, wondering what exactly Shane Davis might have done with his story. Now, to be fair, it's not like uh, Davis couldn't have made it or anything like that. For whatever reason, he affirmatively chose not to be involved with this book. And even if the answer is something as prosaic as, you know, he had he had drawn 
pr Superman pretty much nonstop for something like three years up to that point. And maybe he wanted to go on and draw other stuff for a while. You know, he is an artist, and they do thrive on... Um, Variety. Yeah, and is it really fair to lock somebody into a box like that for however long this series is going to go on? Maybe not, but I felt like it, at the very least, this is a sort of a three-part story, like you were saying, and I would have wanted to see Davis finish what he started. And the other thing is, you know, I, you know, my beef with the art, you know, I missed Shane Davis. I'm not really all that big on Artie and Saif. I mean, there are portions where I think the art is pretty good. But then there are other places where I'm thinking, you know, holy shit, where are you, Shane Davis? You know, America turns its eyes towards you, you know? Uh, so, sorry, where have you gone, Shane Davis? America turns, whatever. So, right. and that's just, you know, that's, that's where, that's where I'm coming from with it. So, uh, I don't know, what did you think of the art? It, you know, I'm one of those readers that the art is not something I always latch on to unless it's very standout in one direction or the other. Um, to me, I felt like Saif had a similar enough style to Davis mm -hmm. that it was able to play of a piece with the previous volume. Mm -hmm. um, there definitely wasn't any place that stood out to me as being uh, let down except for the flashbacks to the Tyrell stuff. Right. In uh, those flashbacks to Tyrell, I don't know what it was about this particular rendition, but that did, that looked like, I don't know, I don't want to say anything rude, but it just did not seem to fit with what we had gotten before. But just as far as the general storytelling and the characters and looks of everybody and the way things were portrayed on the page, I felt like there was enough of a similar tone and style that they could sit together on the shelf pretty nicely. Yeah. As opposed to some, some, you know, some annuals and oversized issues I've read recently where they couldn't get it done in time. So five different people are doing the art in a 30 or 40 page book and you turn the page and it's jarringly different style. Right. Um, or, you know, I'm reading through the clone saga, Spider-Man, and whenever Bill Sinkovitz takes over as inker for Sabi Shema and Spectacular... Oh, jeez. Yeah, that is right. terrible. I, I, You know, that Spectacular Spider-Man might ac have actually been my favorite Spider-Man book at the time, but for friggin' Bill son of a bitch. Yeah, I know what you mean. And, I, I, and I'm not gonna say it is... Well, I, yeah, I, I liked it less than what it was before, but just the transition, the, the fact that it was so di different was also so damn jarring. Um, I think he pulled back a little bit on his style as the book went on. No, I, I agree with you. And the thing is, you know, I, on the one hand, I don't want to, I, I don't want to make this sound, you know, as bad as it might in that, you know, one of the things I try to never do on this, uh, on this show is, you know, criticize somebody's creativity unless there's a damn good reason for it. And in this case, there's nothing wrong as far as, you know, technique or competence or anything like that with the art. Number one, it's the con the lack of continuity that bothers me. And then number two, there's just the line style itself that I'm just not a, a huge fan of. And like I say, there are portions where it's okay. And then there are portions where, honestly, guys, you know, really, what 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 the hell happened? But as, you know, uh, it, it, again, it's, it's more to do with uh, preference than it is with the more objective things like, 
I don't know, like somebody's anatomy is completely fucked up or the, the shadow is, uh, the light and shadow balance is totally screwed or, or something like that, you know? So it's one of those things that we can't not talk about it, but I, I, at the same time, I don't want to make too big a deal out of it either. One of the things, though, that um, this book did that I, I, wasn't, I wasn't expecting to have happen here is that it introduced the concept of kryptonite. Now... Superman's gotten kicked around in uh, the previous two volumes first by that sort of red sun krypton uh, atmosphere stuff from the first uh, the first volume and then he he had the crap beaten out of him by the parasite who was leeching Superman's own powers from him in the story but this is the first time I think that Superman faced a substance that was known to be poisonous to him and the one of the things that I think a lot of writers and, and creators they tend to overlook is the psychological impact that Kryptonite has on Superman. That you know he's lived his whole life secure in the knowledge that he is unbreakable; nothing can touch him. And then it's not even a weapon. You just pull out a rock, a radio, a piece of you know radioactive fragment. And now you've pretty much just destroyed Superman. A bullet can't hurt him, but somehow a rock can. And what that does to him on a psychological level, I don't know that a lot of artists always necessarily play with to it to the full extent. But I get the idea we're starting to see that here. This was a big enough priority to Superman that he had his ship develop some type of... Uh, protective armor so that he could go harvest the, the kryptonite and presumably get rid of it, only to find that it had, it had already been stolen by Lex Luthor. And what I like is that this could... I, I don't mean it like in a whiny, angsty, emo kind of way, but more that this kind of... It could be a, a little bit of a psychological, psychological frailty that Superman can carry around with him. That You know what? There's this substance out there, this rock, of all things, a rock that can totally eat my sack lunch if somebody finds out what this stuff is and they find out how to use it. And it's a good bet that somebody has, because how else would anyone have known, A, that it was there, and B, that they need to take it, you know? So there's right. a lot of possibility here, and I like not so much the fact that kryptonite's around, although there's that, but more what this could intend, what this could portend for uh, Clark as a character and what, I guess, what kryptonite could mean to him. And I'm not entirely sure how Lex found out about the kryptonite and actually, you know, was, was cognizant of it enough to go and snatch it. But regardless, she has it now, and it's, it's a danger. Um, I thought it was amusing that the full-body skin suit that his ship fashioned for him, mm -hmm. as soon as he puts it on, it, there, there are holes for his cape and his his hair to fly free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, speaking of his ship, uh, um, it's been a while since I've read volume two, but I still remember the ship having quite a personality in that second volume that I was, or maybe it was the first volume that I was rather fond of. And sh the ship doesn't get as much screen time in this story, but I am a fan. The one thing about it, though, that I thought was interesting was that whenever Superman was asking for information on Zod and it was encrypted, the ship said, well, I can, un I can decrypt it, 
but it might be at the risk of damaging or corrupting other files. Mm-hmm. And so that, and the kryptonite, and something else that I've forgotten that we mentioned earlier, I see as potential setups for future stories. Um, little seeds and details to help the narrative feel like it's one big flow uh, from one book to the next. I don't know, I have no idea what those are going to turn out to be, but it could be connected to something they're going to do later. I agree. Well, and I, I, I kind of like the idea of Superman having a sort of non-Jarrell artificial intelligence that uh, from Krypton that he can interact with and uh, tell him things, but it doesn't have that paternal quality to it. That uh, his father will always be Jonathan Kent. And there's nothing wrong with having an artificial intelligence Jarrell ensconced in the uh, Fortress of Solitude. I mean, that was a major element of the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. It's a major, major element of Smallville. End of the day, though, that's not the only way to skin the cat. And um, I like the fact that uh, that this version of Superman has that. But another thing is that when credits roll, so to speak, for uh, this book, for the first time, you know, the sky really is the limit for uh, the Earth-1, the Superman-Earth-1 universe. Whereas in at the end of Superman Earth 2, there was st- there was still business out there. We had some idea of wh- of you know wh- what might come from there. At the end of Superman Volume 1 or, or Earth 1 Volume 2, again, we figured well, a, a three-act story structure is a pretty straightforward thing, so whatever's going to happen in Volume 3 is going to be I guess the climax of everything that we've read up to now. But now that we're pretty much firmly I guess, entrenched in the Earth-1 version of Superman's mythos. We're really at a point now where the sky truly is the limit in terms of where these characters can go, what they can do, and, uh, you know, what might happen in future stories and so forth. So I'm really look, uh, looking forward to it. You know, I will like, uh, how about you? I mean, where, what do you think is going to happen in uh, future installments? Oh, I, I hesitate to speculate on what is going to happen, but I do agree that, you know, having come to a closure of basically every narrative thread, it's an open book for the next volume. Uh, you know, he has his relationship with Lisa. He, uh, he has... He basically almost lost his life, and so there's a bit of a feeling of climax and, you know, resolution of good feelings like you know we've had a really hard fight we've come back yeah i mean it gets so dark that he he freaking called his mom yeah. to say goodbye and that was a moment that just just really pulled at my heart um but he's he's uh, he's past that he's healing up his uh his girlfriend or certainly sweetheart is is on the mend and he has something going with lois that is open to future volumes interpretation um, and one of the things that is said, let me get my last page out here so I can read it off the page here. Sure. That I think is such an important uh, aspect of modern Superman as opposed to other versions of Superman. Um, okay, so Lisa's talking. Make me proud, Clark. Make the whole world proud of you. Let them see you the way I see you. Flawed, funny, powerful, sweet. Not an alien, not a Kryptonian, human. Despite it all, despite anything they might say or think or believe, you're human, 
where it counts, go get him, Clark. And I feel like the humanity of Superman is something that's been played with and, and brought out ever since, maybe before then, but especially ever since the, uh, the John Byrne reboot. Mm-hmm. But it's being done differently in the modern era. And the word flawed that is on that page, I think, is an important part of that. Mm-hmm. Because there was a time in Superman's history where the idea of him being flawed was anathema. He's Superman. He is the paragon of superheroics. Mm-hmm. He can do no wrong. But the idea that he's flawed is now not only allowed, but occasionally emphasized. And, you know, we've, we've brought up Man of Steel several times, but after seeing that movie for a couple of times, the thing that I took away from it is that the title, the, the word man in that title was so crucial and at the heart of the modern interpretation of Superman that we were seeing mm-hmm. is that, you know, he may be of steel, he may be powered, he may be more than you and I are, but at, at the end of the day, down in his heart where it counts, he's just a dude. And he's trying to do the right thing. Doesn't always do it, but he's always trying to do it. Right. As opposed to the Superman who always does it no matter what. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I enjoy these books so much why I enjoy Man of Steel so much is because I feel like it's a version of Superman that is new and that is different and that has a lot of room to be explored in a lot of different ways. And I feel like JMS is doing it probably better than the Incontinuity books are doing it right now. Um, But it's, it's something I really, really like about modern Superman. Which is not to say that it's better than Silver Age, Bronze Age Superman, just that it's different, and I'm enjoying where we are right now. Agreed. And that's the thing. It kind of goes back to you know the diversity of material that you can have. I think an, un- an unsung, unappreciated diversity of material. But anyway, well, um, again, I, I just want to uh, thank you very much for uh, joining me in all of this. You know, this entire discussion is so much more than I would have been able to do by myself. So I just want to, uh, you know, especially, you know, considering what a pain in the neck I know this must have been for you, or at least <laughs> I suspect this must have been for you. Um, I know that you probably had a million other things that you could have been doing during during your little road trip here. So I just want to thank you again uh, for making this uh, this show the absolute best that it could be. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very, very much for having me. My only request is that I'd be allowed to talk for a second about my show. Of course, of course. Yeah, no, that, no, that always, always. Yeah, go ahead. Shows, by the way. Oh, yes. Well, okay, so now, granted, it's been a while since we recorded this, that you're hearing it now, but Lily and I have been moving through our Avengers Inspirations podcast, and in spring of 2015, we have hit the first issue of The Avengers, and we have been doing a Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch, talking about each installment of that as we go along, episode by episode, film by film. Uh... Um, so that's been fun. It's been fun to finally get into the uh, the meat of the team that we set out to talk about initially. And um, so I definitely encourage you to come over and listen to that. If you want to hear the most awesome teenage comic books fan in the world laugh with her dad about 60s comics, I mean, if you don't want that, I don't know who you are. But, you know, <laughs> Avengers Inspiration. There you go. So that's me tooting my horn. Um, other shows that I'm planning on doing stuff with in the summer that's already passing you hear this are golden age superman 
from looking at the 1940s Adventures of the Man of Steel in all their forms. Uh, the New 52 Adventures of Superman with the trade volumes of uh, the current incarnation of the Man of Steel. And uh, I do plan to hopefully have gotten back to the Star Wars saga cast going back to the 70s and early 80s uh, development of that mythos. Now that we have this new universe they're doing, I feel like I'm going to be firmly entrenched in the old uh, for the for the for the podcast, which is not to diss on the current stuff, but I think that's the flavor I want to stay with. Awesome. So those are all there. They're all searchable on iTunes. Oh, sounds good. And uh, so very good. Well, uh, again, thank you for joining in. And so I think that's pretty much it for uh, this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. We are out. Yay! Well, I'm glad that worked out then. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook, just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. 
all models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>